I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. We look together at verses 18 to 29. Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. We're looking at the next letter given by the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit to his servant, the Apostle John, addressing particular needs and particular challenges in these seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. And because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, what he sees and what he demands from his churches is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so just because we are separated by almost 2,000 years of history from these ancient churches, we have the same needs, and Christ makes the same demands upon us. So we better listen up and heed what he has to say to his churches. When we come to the letter to the church of Thyatira, returning about Going, turning southeast and going about 40 to 45 miles from the previous city of Pergamum. And when you arrive in Thyatira, you see a very different kind of city. Whereas the previous three churches and the cities named here find themselves in the midst of emperor worship. These are cities committed to patriotism and the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum are all competing to show who is most loyal to Caesar. When we come to Thyatira, we're seeing a city that can't compete with those other cities, but is nevertheless a bustling economic hub. And we have some scriptural evidence that shows us this is a city with all kinds of labor unions and trade guilds. There are workers in all kinds of different fields. We have bronze smiths, dyers of wool, wool washers, potters, bakers, you name it, leather workers. And we actually know of one particular individual in the New Testament who was from Thyatira, Lydia, named in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 14. And it's no coincidence that we're told Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth. Her job, her vocation, reflected where she was from. And what that means for the church here is that even though they may not be as subject to the pressures of emperor worship, as in no one's forcing them to pay homage to Caesar. They're still tempted by idolatry because each of these trade guilds and labor unions has what you might call a patron saint. There is a Greco-Roman deity who stands as the representative of that particular trade. We could compare it to like a mascot over each of these trade guilds. And so it was expected of you, if you shared in this particular guild, that you would also share in the celebration of the patron deity of that trade. 
you're going to offer sacrifices to that deity, and you're going to party as people partied at that time. This is going to involve all kinds of sexual immorality, of fornication. And that was all approved. That's part of what we do in paying homage to this deity. And these Greco-Roman deities live that kind of lifestyle, so they thought. So, of course, they wouldn't begrudge us from a little pleasure, a little gratification here and there. That's just part and parcel of being a citizen of Thyatira, unless you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that such practices are intolerable to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the particular need in this church is for holiness. Holiness in the midst of all kinds of unholiness. In the midst of a city like Thyatira. All kinds of pressure bearing down on these Christians to cave in and participate. And there's some interesting contrasts we can make with the previous churches we've seen. Whereas the church in Ephesus is busy, productive, and orthodox. They hold to the right teaching and they reject the false teaching that was present. The Nicolaitans, we're told. The practices of the Nicolaitans. They, they hate that. But there's no love for Jesus present. They're orthodox, but they don't love Jesus. There's no fervency. There's no affection for him. Well, in Thyatira, there's love for Jesus, all right. There's fervor. There's focus on Jesus. But there's a lack of concern for orthodoxy. And like the church in Smyrna, the church in Thyatira perseveres. There is perseverance present. They have withstood so many of these temptations to cave in. And like the church in Pergamum, they have not only accepted the false teaching. That's the main emphasis to Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. There's, there's false teaching, and they're tolerating that. They're not speaking up. They're not addressing it. But now in Thyatira, they've gone a step further. Now it's not just false teaching, it's false living that's the problem. A lack of holiness. And when I say that Christ demands holiness from his people, from his church, we may squirm a little at that. Me, holy? This church, holy? How could Jesus possibly make that kind of demand on people like us in churches like this? Here's what we need to understand about the holiness that Christ demands from his people and from his church. While it is true, we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all trust in ourselves. We've all gone astray. There are only two kinds of sinners. There are unrepentant sinners... And there are repentant sinners. Unrepentant sinners say, I'm fine just the way I am. And so what if I engage in some pleasure, some gratification here and there? I'll be at church on Sunday. 
I'm a good parent. I'm a good spouse. I'm a trustworthy person. Isn't that good enough? Whereas a repentant sinner says, <laughs> the very best that I could offer pales in comparison to what Jesus deserves from me. Unrepentant sinners welcome Jesus as long as he does not scrutinize their lives too closely. Jesus is fine. We'll put him on stained glass windows. We'll read about him. We'll praise him. We'll seek to emulate him and copy him. We'll learn from him. But we don't want him looking into our lives or telling us what to do. Whereas repentant sinners, those who are willing to turn from their sins and trust in Christ, repentant sinners welcome the fiery and purifying gaze of Jesus into every corner of their lives. Every corner. They welcome the purifying gaze of Jesus. They say, Jesus, don't just look in this room. Look in that room. Look in my closet. Search me and know me. Test me. See if there is any offensive way in me. I want to be rid of that. I hate my sin. I love Jesus. Purify me. So with those categories on the table, unrepentant sinners and repentant sinners, test yourself against what Jesus says to the church in Thyatira. Which are you? The starting point for holiness is being a repentant sinner. So we pick up our reading at verse 18. Revelation 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. 
just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to the messenger of the church in Thyatira, write these, these words. And so as we've seen in each of these letters, that there is first a description of who Jesus is. A description of who Jesus is, using highly symbolic language. And what we see about Jesus here is he's the Son of God. His eyes are like blazing fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. Much of this imagery reaches back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And it's showing us the kind of judgment that Jesus has. By describing himself as the Son of God, Jesus is showing that he has exclusive authority to judge because he is God's chosen king. God the Father's chosen king. As we read in Psalm 2, verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron or scepter of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. He has the exclusive authority to reign and to judge as king. By describing his eyes as like blazing fire, he is describing the reach of his judgment. And the reach of his judgment is all-encompassing. He is the one who searches hearts and minds. And one day all the churches will know that he is the one who searches hearts and minds. You can run from his gaze, but you cannot hide ultimately. And also the image of fire conveys the purity of his judgment. The purity of his judgment. And the purity of his judgment is also seen in the burnished nature, the shiny nature of this bronze. Where he looks, he purifies. When he peers into our lives and our hearts, his sight is pure because he is pure. And then by describing his feet as bronze, we're told about the power of his judgment. He can crush anyone or anything who stands in opposition to him. And one day he will. That's who Jesus is. That's the Lord who peers into the church of Thyatira. It speaks to them. This is the sovereign king who gazes at Tabernacle Baptist Church. Are we aware of his presence? We're aware when someone famous comes into our midst, we can't help but be aware of their presence. Are we aware of when Jesus is in our midst? And he's in our midst right now. And he's not just hearing the words you're hearing, he's looking into your hearts. He's looking into my heart. He's judging not just the words that come out of my mouth, but the intentions of my heart and yours. 
So wake up. Be aware. This is the Lord of the church. And then we're told about what he knows. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. First, he gives his praise for this church. Five things are named here. Each of them is commendable in a church, and they should be present in any healthy church. And he goes on to commend the fact that they're doing more now than they did at first. Can the same be said of you today? If you would claim to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, if you claim to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you think back to those early days, and your passion, and your love for Christ, and your desire to do whatever He wants you to do, compare your life now. When He looks at your life, are you doing more now? Or if you're honest, you're actually doing less because you think, well, I, I did all that. I, I think I proved myself back then. I've done my duty. I've served on, served on committees. I've volunteered in the nursery. I've gone on this mission trip. I've had this title or this office in the church. I've done my duty. Now, Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, you're doing more now than you did at first. Praise God. Would that he could say the same thing about me and about you today. But then he hastens to his protest against this church. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Verse 20. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. The likelihood is there is an actual woman in Thyatira at this time who styles herself a prophetess and who is misleading servants. But the likelihood is that her name is not actually Jezebel. Probably Jesus is invoking the Old Testament character of Jezebel to show the kind of teaching that's happening here. And what do we know about the historical Jezebel? Well, you can read about her in 1 Kings 16, and she shows up in various ways on through 2 Kings chapter 9. But the main thing we need to know about her is that she was married to King Ahab of the northern king of Israel. And she led Ahab to set up temples to Baal, to Ashtoreth, to false gods. She was the real power behind the throne. She led him to execute the Lord's prophets and to persecute prophets like Elijah. She was ruthless and cruel and her desire to hold on to power. And she manipulated King Ahab. And she met a grisly end. She ended up being thrown out of a window. Her blood splattered against the wall. Her body eaten by dogs. 
until there was almost no remnant of her corpse left. That's Jezebel. So when Jesus says that this woman who calls herself a prophetess is like Jezebel, what he means is that what she represents is just as wicked and just as evil and will lead to just as much suffering as the historical Jezebel. And notice that her teaching is misleading. If you look back at the letter to the church in Pergamum, in verse 14, for example, he says, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, drawing from another Old Testament figure. And then again in verse 15, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The emphasis there is on false teaching. You're tolerating false teaching, but here that false teaching is leading, as it inevitably will, to false living. Now, you may say, well, praise God we don't have a Jezebel in our midst right now. Whew! Okay, we can keep reading. That, that doesn't apply to us. While, no, I'm not aware of any Jezebels in our midst, the allure of Jezebel is present with us in every age and in every church. And here's what I mean. There are certain dangers represented by this kind of false teaching that leads to false living that we must guard against. Let me name a few of them. The allure of personality worship. Notice how much of this is centered on one individual. She draws the people to herself. No doubt she was dynamic. People want to hear what she has to say. So also now, popular evangelical, evangelicalism seems to have this obsession with certain personalities, with a certain celebrity-making culture. What do I mean? Well, on the market right now, you can buy study Bibles that have a certain pastor's name on it that will tell you what that pastor says about any given verse in the Bible. And while I'm not saying that publishing those study Bibles is sinful or wrong, I am saying we need to be careful with that. We need to be careful with that. God raises up sound, faithful teachers for his church and praise him that he does so. But his people need to be able to distinguish between his word and the words of men. And sometimes when we put them side by side, we start to get an unhealthy dependence upon another human teacher. This is how Christian books are often marketed. By your favorite author. And that's, that's fine. If, if God has used a particular teacher to help you, great. But just watch out that our sinful human nature tends to develop this unhealthy dependence so that if that teacher or that leader is caught in scandal, your faith falters as a result because you had an unhealthy dependence on that person. Watch out for that. 
It also shows up in more subtle ways. People have the best of motives behind this. And I think I can tell this story without getting in too much trouble. But when I was first called as pastor here, one of the very serious suggestions that was made is that what we should do is print up a picture of me and maybe my family on a banner out by the road. We'll put that out by the road so that whoever drives by will see, hey, there's a young pastor of this church. That'll draw them in. That'll bring them. What, don't people want to see a young pastor with a young family and that's so appealing? And again, this suggestion was made with the best of motives. It was made out of a desire to try to reach people. But do you see how that's catering to this personality cult, this worship of a particular person? Beware of any preacher, teacher, or leader who puts the attention on him or herself instead of Jesus. I want my ministry to be about Jesus. I want to point away from myself to him. Beware of this allure. It's so appealing. And, and we think that we can adopt the world's marketing schemes to reach more people. And praise God, He can use the look of a pastor. He can use anything, no matter how superficial, to draw people to Himself. But we're talking about the means that He has authorized for us to use. God can use any means He chooses to build up His church. But he has not authorized every means for us to use. We are to stay faithful in using the means that he has provided. That is the proclamation of his gospel, prayer, the breaking of bread, worship, fellowship. This is what we're to be about. But in Jezebel, we see the allure of a personality. We also see the allure of an impressive presentation. An impressive presentation. This is the kind of presentation that can fill an auditorium, that can fill a stadium. And we think that somehow that is more evidence of God's working than a church where there are maybe ten faithful brothers and sisters gathered to worship the Lord. Praise God that he does fill stadiums with people. Praise God for dynamic presentations. That's great. But that's no guarantee of holiness. That's no guarantee of holiness. And Christ's demands of her holiness, of his people, are the same whether there are a thousand people or ten people. Are we alert to the allure of an impressive presentation? We're drawn to that. Surely she's speaking truth because look at the eloquence. Also, we see the allure of novelty. If you skip down to verse 24, we're told that she and her followers are teaching the so-called deep secrets of Satan. The so-called deep secrets. Jesus is saying she's pretending to teach something that you can't get from your normal pastors, that you can't just get from the scriptures. You need some deeper understanding here. 
and we are prone to eat that up. Oh, this is, this is somebody who's going to show me something in the Word that I've never seen before. Oh, I, I want that. I want that. This itching for novelty. Show me something new. Show me something fresh. Show me something that I can't get anywhere else. Beware of that. Beware of that. What we need is the plain and simple faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That's what we need. And while it's fine to be creative and to use a certain level of novelty in presenting the gospel, times change, it needs to be presented in a little different format, but the core of the truth of it remains the same. As we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 24, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. We don't need to go beyond the Scriptures. The Scriptures are what is normative. The Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. And any preacher, any teacher, any leader, no matter how dynamic, no matter how gifted at drawing a crowd, no matter how impressive the presentation, if they lead you beyond the Scriptures, it's falsehood. Watch out for that. And then we have the allure of compartmentalizing. The allure of compartmentalizing. Evidently, this is still someone who's in the church, and the people who are following her are still in the church. And so probably what she's teaching is something like, you can have Jesus, you can have the gospel, and so what if you participate in a pagan feast every now and then? Everybody does. You've got to keep with the times. You don't want to be the only people that still believe something so backward, right? And so you can compartmentalize your life. As long as you're in church on Sunday, as long as you offer to Jesus acceptable worship on Sunday, what you do the rest of the week, that's up to you. And you're free to do that. Don't let anybody come in with a legalistic mindset and try to hinder your freedom. Remember the difference between unrepentant sinners and repentant sinners? Unrepentant sinners say, Jesus, you can have this part of my life. You can come into this room of my life, but not that corner. Not that corner. Whereas repentant sinners say, Jesus, my life is yours. I want you to see every single aspect of my life, every single dark corner. I know I can't do anything in secret from you. Your eyes are like fiery blazes and they peer into my life and I want that because I need that because apart from you I have no righteousness I have no holiness so which are you I'm sure this routine happens in your house as it happens in ours when someone's coming to visit there's a frenzied scramble to try to clean up 
right? Put whatever we need to put away, and usually there's some place where we can just stash stuff for the time being because no guest is going to look in there. They shouldn't be. Shouldn't be snooping around in there. We have our place, our closet, our room, garage, whatever it is for you, we have our place, right? Because somebody's coming to visit. And that's what it's like when we refuse to repent. Jesus, you could see everything. Just don't go in there. No, no, no. That door's locked. As opposed to saying, Jesus, come in. Cleanse me. Purify me. I need you. I don't want to hide anything from you because I can't. It's all vanity. It's futile. And look at what he's going to do. Just as the historical Jezebel was thrown down out of a window, he says, I will throw her down on a bed of suffering. And everyone who participates in her adultery will suffer as well. And the spiritual offspring, those who subscribe to her teaching, they will, will be struck dead. Unless they repent of their ways, there's still time. Avail yourself of God's mercy now. Swing open those closets now. There's still time. We don't know how much longer we have, but in this moment, there's time. Call out to the Lord now and be saved. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't fall prey to these deceptions and these dangers. And what does he promise? He promises that those who are victorious, those who deal with this now, will share in this reward. But what are we to do with a Jezebel? So, so, so we don't want any part of that. This is where Jesus holds his church accountable for how we discipline one another. And we are not victorious. We're not faithful unless we deal with this. Has he given us any instructions on how we deal with that? As a matter of fact, he has. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, in verses 15 to 18, he tells us exactly what to do. If someone is not living according to the gospel, if someone is teaching contrary to the gospel, he holds us accountable. We are to draw a line. Churches these days don't like drawing lines. But if we're faithful to Jesus, we have to. And that line that we draw is at church membership. Anyone should be safe and welcome at any church event. Anyone, no matter what they believe, no matter how they live, no matter what they look like, we want them to be welcome. But to be a member, you are saying that there is credible evidence that you have been born again. Therefore, you are held to a higher standard of holiness. And we hold one another accountable to that standard. And where it appears that a brother or sister has fallen short, what do we do? We go directly to that brother or sister. Say, brother or sister, according to the Word of God, not just what I think or my personal opinion, but according to what is written. We don't want to go beyond what is written, but according to what is written, I don't think you're living according to the gospel. And brother and sister, I know I've got a log sticking out of my eye. But I'm going to be faithful to what Jesus says. I'm going to try to remove that. I'm going to repent of my own sins so that I'll see more clearly to remove the speck in your eye. 
But if this brother or sister refuses to listen, if they say, no, I'm not living contrary to the gospel, I'm not teaching contrary to the gospel, what do you do? Jesus tells us, you take two or three so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Meaning, they're not a brother or sister. We still love them. We still pray for them. We still preach to them. They need to hear the gospel because clearly they weren't born again. Because if they were born again, they would repent. That's what we're to do. May God help us to be faithful to do what he's called us to do. Faithful in our own personal walk of holiness with him. Faithful in our collective walk with him. And then there are great promises. The one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Think Psalm 2. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. Those who have learned to be faithful to Christ in this life, those who have been faithful with little, will be put in charge of much in the life to come. They will continue doing what they have learned to do faithfully. And I will give that one the morning star. And as we're told in Revelation 22, the morning star is Jesus. I will give them myself, my person. They'll know me in a relationship marked by joy and love. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So which is it for you? Are you a repentant sinner? or an unrepentant sinner? Where does this leave you? Where does it leave me? Consider this. Think of the sin you are most ashamed of. Something you don't want anybody to know. A thought, a deed, a word. You don't want anybody to know that. You'd rather crawl in a hole for a thousand years than have the world know about this. Whatever that is, consider the fact that Jesus sees that, he saw that, and he still went to the cross. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are you moved by that? If he's willing to do that for you, what are you willing to surrender to him? What's keeping you from submitting to him, knowing that? What's keeping you from opening yourself up to say, Lord, here I am. You are the potter, I am the clay. Search me, know me, know if there's any offensive thing in my life, and lead me in the way everlasting. In these next few moments, may we all as individuals spend time looking at our own hearts as we sing these words. May we mean them, and may we be honest with ourselves, honest as a church. And may we pray that we would be repentant sinners. 
who know nothing but the blood of Christ can purify us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these words are severe. And yet we confess that we need them. We need them because we admit freely our tendency to try to hide from you, to hide certain aspects of our lives from you. Lord, lead us to stop. Lead us to say no to the passions of the flesh. Lead us to say no to our frenzied effort to try to fit in with the ways of the world. And lead us, Lord, to say yes to the Lordship of Christ Jesus. May we surrender freely today and joyfully. May we be marked by holiness, both as individuals and as a church. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.